The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Hi, everybody. This is Suzanne. I'm back with you for another episode of Talking About the Greater Reality and Your Role in It. I was so heartened yesterday to do a reading for a woman who had had one reading with me already, and I had promised her a second one. And since I had already met her husband who had passed, it was just another time to get together with him and and have him show her more than ever that he's around. And he answered two questions that had been weighing heavily on her mind and gave incredible detail about his life, his personality, that further cemented her awareness that he is so very much still a part of her life. And that's the goal of any good reading with a medium to show you that life really doesn't end with the death of the physical body. Our guest today, Robert Klepecki, Klepecki has had three chances to cross the veil and came back every time. Three near-death experiences, and I have yet to meet anybody who's had a near-death experience who hasn't had profound learning and transformation as a result of that. And Robert's written several books. We're going to be talking today about one in, one of those in particular, his book, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. I think most of us would agree that would be the optimal way to do it. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert before I bring him in. He's a writer, an artist, and a speaker who lived a variety of lives until becoming an award-winning illustrator, art director, and animation designer. In the course of his unusual path, he survived, as I said, three dramatically different near-death experiences. And we're going to be talking about each of those a little bit, but much more interested in what he learned from those. But those experiences inspired him to study and meditate and led to the publication of his first book, How to Survive Life and Death. He explores, writes, and teaches about the lessons he learned the hard way and blogs at the Mindful Word, Gaia.com, Soul Lifetimes, and other places around the web. Robert, I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. It's it's nice to be here. Well, I know I know it's nice to have you here, and pretty soon everybody else is gonna learn that too. We met when I you've believe had three near death experiences, of course it's nice to be anywhere. Right. That's true. That's true. Well, let's let's just move yeah. right into that. Why don't we? Um, sure. 
I'm I'm always fascinated to hear about people's experiences, including what brought them about. So I'm going to let you just tell it however you'd like, one at a time or about all three. Just take it away. I'm sure the the, the first one happened. Um, I was a very busy uh, artist, uh, illustrator, and art director in Los Angeles at the time, and I was a uh, it was a single car accident. I was driving. Uh, home through an unfamiliar neighborhood at dusk, and this will place it on your timeline. I had a malfunction with my cassette player, so oh boy. I was fussing <laughs> with that, driving yourself. down this unusual street, and somebody was parked in an odd spot, and I glanced off their car and went right into a telephone pole. I was probably going about 35 miles an hour or so. I broke the steering wheel with my face, unfortunately, and the, the uh, windshield with my head, even though I had a, a harness on, a seatbelt on. The very next instant, I found myself at the level of the top of the telephone pole next to a street light that had just come on, and there was a moth flying around the street light, and I looked down, and here was this wrecked car in the telephone pole with steam roiling out of the crushed uh, hood and kind of an arm hanging out of the driver's side. And as I looked, I realized that that was me down there. Uh, When I looked around from where I was, up at the level of the top of this pole, I could look over hedges into people's yards and stuff in this neighborhood I'd never been to before. And I saw lights uh, flicking on on porches and people running out who had heard the, uh, the crash and calling for an ambulance. And I witnessed the ambulance uh, pull up and put me in it. And <clears throat> I don't recall having been a body, so to speak, but I was myself. I did remember seeing it as from my point of view. I did not feel alone. I felt like there was somebody up and to the left behind me, who, like a spirit guide that was uh, sort of ushering me, so to speak. And I tried to talk to people. I tried to communicate to people, but I couldn't. And then uh, this um, guide from behind me said, you know, it's time to move along. And I moved into what I only remember now as being kind of a, a bank, like a warm cloud bank, the next thing I recall, I was in a very uh, beautiful uh, kind of pastoral place, like a park, beautiful nature, and sitting with a personage, uh, the, the, the details, I couldn't really describe them to you exactly, but I was having those experiences that all near-death experiencers, survivors have, of uh, a sense of being enfolded in love completely, having this kind of sense of transcendent unity and we were having this conversation that seemed very important i can't recall the details of it but it was as though things got kind of hashed out in a way and um that carried on for you know it's very difficult to judge time in these sort of extra-dimensional circumstances and uh, i came to about 20 hours later in a hospital with my head heavily bandaged and i was uh i was deposited at a loading dock in a wheelchair not too terribly long after that because I did not have health insurance at the time. Um, Within the next uh, week or so, I revisited the site and walked around and realized that uh, the things that I had seen from the level of the top of the telephone pole were accurate. 
that I had been able to look behind these hedges and behind bushes and stuff and, and see this neighbor, this unfamiliar neighborhood um, from that point of view. Uh, so that was my first near-death experience. I wasn't could really I, could able I interrupt to share you a it very well with So people, you say you, you, know? you had no sensation of a physical body. Correct. I did not have a sensation of a physical body, nor do I recall having hands or, you know, any actual form uh, to speak and again, of. And in fact, I felt boundaries uh, disappear, kind of. You know, I felt completely absorbed into a larger intelligence, into a greater uh, mind, <clears throat> so to speak. And so this is what I find so fascinating, and I want to let all of you listening just really let this sink in for you, is that he doesn't have, at that time, he didn't have physical eyes, yet he was seeing the same way, isn't this true, Robert, as you see now? Still seeing, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we do, we do retain an aspect of self that's able to perceive in that regard. Um, I, the fact that I didn't relate to myself uh, physically was that, that was something it was a little hard to put the genie back in the bottle after that in my life experience when i went back to my regular life i tried to talk to people about it sometimes but i didn't know that there was a near-death community at all and this was in the early 80s yeah. so it may not have been as developed as it is now and people just kind of looked at me like i was crazy so i just went on with things i stopped talking about it and suppressed it really to a degree well may i ask you uh did you see this spirit guide, or it was just an awareness of a presence with you? Well, this is something that that interests me a lot because of the three near-death experiences and them all being different from one another, is that that nature of perception in, in those circumstances is something that's kind of hard to put a finger on. I feel that we have to relate according to sort of pattern recognition. As humans, I only have this language to communicate to you what I experienced. The way that I remember it is there was a personage across, kind of like a table from here. It's, as I re recall it, it's like a cafe table. But then I, I may be kind of, you know, superimposing that kind of imagery onto the experience, I think. Uh, because when I get to the other two experiences, they were very different, and I think the same kind of thing happened. So I can't really remember exactly what this person looked like. I remember a great deal of kindness, this kind of sense of karmic instruction taking place, you know. Uh, it was a beautiful place that I was in, so there was this radiant illumination. So there were these aspects that we find consistent in all near-death experiences that were consistent in mine of pure love and radiant illumination and transcendent unity and karmic instruction, you know. Do you recall a discussion about going back and a choice about that? I don't in that one. No, okay. I don't. All right. That's my third one, and maybe I should hit on my second one here. Yeah, and, let's please go to uh, the second one, sure. Yeah. The, with the, the first one I call that the gift of perspective, that out-of-body experience. The second one was, was a life review was a life review experience and it happened when i was uh, uh, burning the candle at both ends living a, the life of a, a downtown new york city artist um i was living kind of a riotous lifestyle and i ended up just having a series of kind of cascading negative reactions to everything i'd been doing to myself and i essentially fell out on the floor of my apartment and felt completely uh, numb 
I felt kind of the life draining out of me. I was sort of paralyzed from the neck down. I was with somebody, and they became, you know, very alarmed and stuff. But I yes. witnessed the room fill in with a brilliant white cloud, like this radiant illumination again, that I was then enfolded in this sense of kind of pure love and a sort of boundaryless uh, um, experience where I, <clears throat> I don't remember being a body anymore. I was definitely seeing through, you know, my eyes, so to speak, because, again, I was not alone. I had this presence behind me that guided me to look in a particular direction, a little to my left, into this cloud, so to speak, and it opened up into a kind of a screen, or what I like to call a kind of a box of experience. So it was a an extra-dimensional kind of a screen that played these scenes from my life. And they were not the greatest hits. These were not wonderful <laughs> moments, but these were moments of um, great significance kind of to me. You know, they're pivotal, seminal moments where I had not been present in a way that I should have been to have learned the lessons uh, in present in that. Or, you know, what what I was bringing to these situations that where I wasn't uh, uh, as present as I could be. And um, did all and of those entail interac interactions with others? Were they all about relationship yes, of some sort? Yes, they were. And I don't remember exactly how many there were. I think, you know, it, it always seems to me of about four or five or maybe six of these serially. And I... I even though I have had uh, specifics sort of um, surface over the years in meditation and, and the like, uh, exploration, I've never had any kind of um, therapy regarding this, but uh, I tend not to describe uh, those kinds of realizations so much because I feel like I need to keep my near-death experiences as they were when I remembered them so that yeah. I'm not adding to them uh, inappropriately, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes, that's great. It's, it's a default of the human uh, condition to kind of self-enhance or, you know, uh, memory is, is not all that reliable. <laughs> so, um, so my experience of these things was that they were very important moments, and they the overall experience moved me profoundly and made me uh, realize the moment, the power of the eternal moment, so to speak. And so I call this my gift of presence. Um, I started to hear the person that I was in the room with after maybe uh, 20 minutes or so, I guess, in real time. I started hearing this person freaking out completely, and that it re-entered this experience I was having. And the screen kind of closed up, and the clouds started to thin out and at the reality of the room that I was in started to re-enter again and I could feel that my juices kind of start to flow again and <clears throat> so that was kind of my shortest uh, experience in real time uh, but it took me quite a while to um, to uh, recover from that and like the first one without realizing it I you know I didn't have anybody to really share these things I felt very alone in these experiences but I did experience some great life changes after that okay so that I know we'll get to that in this show but let's hear about the third one 
And the third one, I, um, it was some years later, and I was living in uh, Arizona. I was in a small town, and I was on the telephone after a Super Bowl in a public place, and I was assaulted by uh, what we used to call skinheads, right, like a big tough guy, um, a young guy. And uh, he seemed to be a little inebriated, and he was assaulting me while I was on a pay phone. So you can tell how long ago that was, too, since yeah. there aren't many pay I phones. I saw one of those the other day. It's like, oh, an antique. <laughs> Take a picture of that, yeah. So this kid, this kid uh, started assaulting me and reached in and hung up the phone as I was talking to someone, and... I kind of talked him out of his aggression for a moment and got back on the phone, and he came back much more violently. And I had spent many years as a martial artist, and I did I reacted in a way that I recognize now as being completely wrong, completely inappropriate. Mm. I planted my back foot, and I punched him right on the kisser. And he went down uh, like timber, and the people around me in this public place applauded because they had witnessed the whole thing. Uh, but what I didn't realize was there was a van full of these skinhead kids that had witnessed the whole thing. So when I left to go home, they drove up behind me and hit me in the back of the head with a crowbar or a tire iron, something like that, and sent me into uh, my third experience where I was in a more... Um, a more terrestrial place. It was almost subterranean or womb-like. Was the it was not full of this kind of divine radiant illumination uh, like the other two had been to a degree. And I was surrounded by personages in that one. I remember just sort of like a row of people or spirits around me. Again, I don't have a really uh, you know defined uh, memory of what they looked like or who they were or anything like that. But they were all telling me that I had gone about things in a difficult way or in, in a way that I needed to make up for, that I wasn't going to get to stay, that I had to leave. And so in, in, in this experience, I wanted to stay there very badly. I did not want to come back to this world. I had this kind of external sense of violence going on because, as it turns out, these guys stomped and kicked me for about an hour while I was unconscious. And uh, so physically I was really messed up from it. Uh, but in uh, in the experience, these personages, uh, these angels, so to speak, they kind of collected me up. And this is my physical kind of memory or my, my sort of uh, what, what I can recognize and, and uh, communicate as a human being was that they picked me up with their hands, with a whole bunch of hands on me, and pushed me through what seemed to be a kind of a membrane. And I popped through it. And when I popped through it, I opened my eyes, and I was laying on my back on the street with an emergency medical worker over me <clears throat> who said, he's back. And that was my, my third uh, near-death experience where... The lesson I call that is the lesson of purpose, where I was made to realize that I was here for a reason, that there is some kind of a karmic formula that I was uh, creating myself and that I had to return uh, here to fulfill uh, and to create is that a sense just of something that, with everything. Is that something that you just 
intuitively knew or was there some kind of a, a telepathic conversation that ensued between you and these angelic beings? There was a telepathic conversation that was going on that was it was kind of like a um uh kind of like a crowd um all telling me this at one time uh, sort of simultaneously okay. different voices telling me that that I needed to go back that I needed that there were things I needed to do that I had gone about this the wrong way and that I would discover a right way and to trust them and all of, and I was like no way man no I want to stay here and uh I, I don't blame you. struggled but uh I came back yeah. okay so boy it took you Three times. <laughs> At that point, did you really yeah, start to, people, to say, I know. need to pay attention to my purpose in life? <laughs> or <laughs> did, did this suddenly happen after that third one that I, I think I'm going to study some of the the writings about right. spirituality? Or how did this transformation take place? Yeah, don't follow my example. I, I guess I'm peculiarly hard-headed or something. I'm not sure. But actually, it didn't really right away. Even then, it didn't. I had these life changes after each one of them, but they didn't really register with me as such so much because I was still living a egoic kind of human life, uh, so to speak. And <clears throat> what happened to me was that I had started to realize, as um, even though I was successful professionally, that I was not successful in more sort of profound ways. I was not aligned with life uh, in a particularly comfortable way ever. And then I was present at 9-11. I, I was in downtown Manhattan when that happened. And I had this um, moment where I tangibly sensed a almost a cyclonic kind of uh, uh, passage of thousands of souls around me. And mm. something kind of happened to me at that point where I recognized that these experiences that I had 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 been transformative at this level of extra dimensionality, so to speak. Not long after that, I found my way up to the upper Delaware River and bought a small house on the river and began a meditation uh, practice and suddenly started reading all of this material, all of this scriptural material and, and philosophical material and uh you know, quantum physics and all these things I'd never been interested in before. I had a blog that I um, I posted my animation design and illustration on, and I was, you know, working for Cartoon Network and PBS Kids and stuff like that. But it was more important for me to go sit on the rock on the weekend. And in doing so, I received a message to write about this stuff and I started posting these essays on my blog, and they became far more popular than anything I'd ever put on my blog before. And I started getting contacted by other sites, by spiritual sites like Gaia.com and stuff, and asked to uh, to contribute. And um, I kind of channeled my first book, How to Survive Life and Death, the same way. And um, you know, went home and, and Googled spiritual publishers in Brooklyn. And a company came up called Lantern, and I sent them my first manuscript, and the uh, the editor called me the next day and asked me to lunch. 
and sent my uh, my manuscript on to uh, to Konari to Red Wheel Wiser, and they published my first book, and that was how wow. all of this uh, uh, took place. Uh, That's somewhat miraculously, right? So you, yeah. It's did you were you aware as you were reading that this was your purpose unfolding? Was it that knowingness, or did you were you just following the breadcrumbs? Well, I, you know, I had this transformative experience, uh, and it, it, I, I recognize it now as really being a point in my life, and it was in that just few weeks, uh, uh, kind of around 9-11 where it really happened. But I had experienced just before that a kind of a bottom in my life where everything I was doing, regardless of how uh, of how successful I was, wasn't really working. So I had mm-hmm. this you know the dark the dark night of the soul so to speak this a kind of an ego death that took place and i recognize now you know knowing that we are alive before we're born and we're alive after we die and we're taking part in this continuum that uh it, that it all kind of fit together in a way that i had never seen it before that i'd never been able to perceive it before and it began to uh it began to become more, more and more obvious to me, uh, and but it wasn't available to me until I reached that point of kind of absolute humility where nothing seemed to be working in my life, and I had a living death experience like we all have when, you know, somebody dies or you lose a job or, you know, we have these moments in our life where we basically reboot from and in that state of absolute humility, then one becomes capable of spiritual growth. And that's yeah, what it's really something how we have to be. It's kind of like Marine Corps boot camp. You have to be stripped down to just your bare essence so you build back up again. You know, that, that spiritual right, yeah. die daily that they talk about. Well, right. And people ask Robert, me, you know, if, uh, if we're eternal, then why do we need to die if we're eternal? And I believe that the soul requires a death experience to get to that point of humility so that we become truly teachable spiritually. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that more when we come back after the break. And in fact, if I can find it really quickly, it kind of stunned me in the appendix of your book, How to Get to Heaven. There was a quote here that really got to me. There is no getting to any form of heaven without passing through some form of death, which you just said. You may call it the metaphor of death and resurrection, the rising of the mythical phoenix from the ashes. I'm in this work, Robert, because my stepdaughter Susan passed, and she had a giant tattoo of a phoenix on her hip. It was almost prophetic. Yeah. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about happiness. I love that, because that's pretty much what your work focuses on now how to find happiness in this world right here and now and you learned that by crossing to the other world so everybody come back after the break and we're gonna keep going with robert Kapeki. wonderful conversation This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world, welcoming the LGBTQ community today and every day. 
If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Dr. Wayne Dyer, taken from a live lecture at a Celebrate Your Life event in 2014. Just pay attention. Just start to recognize the miraculousness of every moment and everything that shows up in your life. And even the fact that, that you can take a breath and that who you are is here now at this time in an infinity that has no beginning and no end, that you showed up. Pay attention. Notice the trees. Notice the clouds. And as Maslow said, see the unfolding of God in everyone that you encounter. Pay attention. Know that this world that you're in, this physical body that you're in, is not who you are at all. Pay attention. To find out about a Celebrate Your Life event in 2019, visit CelebrateYourLife.com. Ah, Italy. The food, the wine, the art, the culture. Join friends from Unity on a trip to Italy in the spring of 2020. In Rome, you'll walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, visit the Colosseum and the Roman Forum, then head down the beautiful Amalfi Coast to Sorrento, the Isle of Capri, and the ruins of Pompeii, all with people you feel as if you already know. For more, visit unity.org travel. For over 23 years, Liz Dawn and her team at Celebrate Your Life have been presenting transformative events with some of the world's leading spiritual teachers. Experience a Celebrate Your Life event for yourself, October 31st to November 4th in beautiful Sedona, Arizona. Explore your spirituality and open your mind to some new ideas. These events are awesome soul fests that heal and transform. Log on to CelebrateYourLife.com to find out more. Discover what your dreams are trying to tell you. Join dream expert, best-selling author, and hypnotherapist Kelly Sullivan Walden for Ask Dr. Dream every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Central. Kelly will awaken you to the wisdom of your dreaming mind with expert interpretation as well as introduce you to fascinating guests. Each week you'll get information you can use to help make decisions and gain greater self-awareness. Join the show live or listen later on demand here on unityonlineradio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Hi, everybody. We've been enjoying a really interesting conversation with Robert Kopecki, who survived three very different near-death experiences. And in this second half, we're going to be talking about the lesson he, lessons he learned about finding happiness in this world and beyond. If you want to know more about Robert, his website is his name, Robert, K-O-P-E-C-K-Y.com. So check that out after the show. But in the meantime, Robert, before the break, we were talking about you said you were living a very egoic life. 
why don't you explain for those who are listening what you mean by that? Well, the uh, the um, the experience that I've had since I came to all these sort of realizations, or until these the near-death experiences kind of crystallized in me, is that I'm able to engage with people and witness them as filters of divine consciousness, so to speak. So we are all part of divine consciousness, and it is expressing itself through us and all the forms that we see in our life. And so when I'm with somebody, and I recognize this of myself too, I am witnessing a package of karmic information, so to speak, that has this uh, divine consciousness pouring through it and being filtered by that individual experience. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's how I recognize now the human condition, the human experience, is the default egoic experience of expectations and sort of designs on your life and reactions to situations that are inevitable. These are things that we all share, that we all experience as human beings. And so in a way, we are all living the same life here. We're all one thing living the same life. The only difference then is this uh, misperception problem that each one of us has. Uh, Joseph Campbell used to say we're here to, we're here to answer a metaphysical impulse to transcend the delusion of separateness, which I, I've always loved uh, how you put that. This idea that uh, I'm me and I need this and I need that. Uh, Ramana Maharshi used to say the problem with I am this or that is this or that. You know, yeah. If you just stop at I am, now you're talking. And that's where I was. I was stuck on I am this or that. I was supposed to be uh, successful in uh, uh, these different directions in my life. And even when I was, it wasn't necessarily what I had expected. And after, uh, after these experiences crystallized in me, I recognized uh, a different definition of success. Which is? Well, that we are uh, spiritual beings having a physical experience in this life, and that if we can align ourselves with these uh, conditions that we normally attribute to heaven, you know, this, and the, these consistent things that near-death experiencers report on, the pure love, the radiant illumination, transcendent unity, karmic instruction, eternal renewal, this kind of stuff, that we can actually experience uh, heaven on in this life without really dying right that's the important part right. and um, and that sounds that sounds very it's beautiful and i understand it but you've done a beautiful job in your book how to get to heaven without really dying of making it very simple with six practical ways that we can align that we can connect with divine consciousness six words i'll i'll just right. summarize it right here kindness honesty humility forgiveness compassion and service Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, when you think about heaven, you know, I think that's how everybody would be in heaven, right? Kind, honest, humble, forgiving, compassionate. And, uh, you know, any angel would put down their harp to help you unconditionally, <laughs> right? And and so 
the the problem is that for most of us, you know, we go about this life in these material forms, and we've got this series of problems and and things hurt obstacles to get over to get past. And every once in a while, we can align ourselves with this sense of transcendent unity or experience a little bit of bliss, and then it slips away. And if you're anything like me, your default is immediately you're back, you know, under assault, so to speak. And uh, that sense of being a spiritual being who only gets little windows to it every once in a while, um, what I try to do is provide you with a formula in, in the form of changing your perspective through these six principles to turn the equation around and experience life as a spiritual being for whom the material is arising based on the condition of your spiritual self, essentially, on your kind of, you're creating karma in this moment all the time. And you may not see how you can align yourself with heaven, with how people would be in heaven, but if you follow these practices of kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, and compassion, and being of service to others, you will align yourself. You will project uh, heaven into your world, and other people will be drawn into it, and you'll create the conditions of heaven, so to speak, in your life. And so I, I always try to hear what my guests are saying through the ears of those who are listening. And I know there are people out there who are saying, well, I am kind and I am honest and, and I try to be compassionate of service, yet I keep hitting a wall. And that's what you said earlier about, you, you know, things, your life just wasn't flowing. What do you say to those people? Well, I'd say meditate is one of the big tips, and I have a section on it in here because the – Experiences that I had in the in the afterlife, uh, quote unquote, um, I have gotten pretty close to in meditation, and all of my realizations and opening up to this kind of um, this kind of limitless uh, illuminative matrix of loving intelligence, right, that lies underneath everything in the world and stuff, has, have really come to me. Uh, through a meditative practice. And so I always recommend uh, people take that approach. The other thing then is just to to um, imagine yourself as a spiritual being. You, you know, the, if you recognize that you're inhabiting a material world, but it's not you, you know, I am not a illustrator unless somebody has hired me to do illustrations for them. Um, I'm not this or that. I, I identify with the I am uh, part of it. So it has to do with releasing yourself from those kind of human expectations at any moment. It's a kind of a vigilance that one needs to sort of maintain to uh, to be able to lovingly detach from the difficult aspects of life with a kind of a compassionate neutrality, identify yourself as our self, is all being the same thing, and then uh, consciously remove the obstacles to love in your life as best as you can. Yeah, when I was listening to you earlier and you were talking about you know, 
it's really helpful to the spiritual journey to come to that place to know that I am versus I am this or that. And I and I thought about those who are listening who who have never experienced that, who don't get it. What well, what else could I be but this or that? And I think you hit the nail on the head with the meditative practice. Unless you've sat in meditation long enough to have truly peeled away the layers of the onion, it's hard to even conceptualize just being just being <laughs> I am right, without a this or that after it what does your practice yeah. consist of um, you, you know it's a pretty basic meditative practice I just uh, sit in a place and sort of navel gaze for a while kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I summon up the angels and spirits that are significant to me and I release myself from the uh, the um, expectations of the world the the great thing about meditation it it really does two things uh, for me and that i try to pass on to people in my instruction of it one is that it makes me uh, a witness to my own thoughts so i can hear that ego voice um, that we were talking about earlier that identifies us with a series of problems or a series of expectations oftentimes it's judging and comparing and suggesting ways to go about things, things that need to be done. It's that linear kind of uh, thinking. And it's a great thing. It's very useful when we apply it to particular problems. That's how we solve problems lots of times in a mechanical kind of a way. But it is not who we are. And we often find ourselves getting in trouble by overly identifying with that voice in our head as it were. And when we release ourselves in meditation and you you can objectively hear and encapsulate that voice, be a witness to it, then uh, where are you? <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? Who's moment, the one that's witnessing? Can, yeah. Right. And so in that those are the moments when you start to have this loving intelligence arise, this intuitive intelligence arise within you, the still small voice, as the Quakers call it, and everybody knows this, you know, I knew it in my gut, right? And we can identify ourselves more with that, not with ourself, that ego self, but with ourself, that we are all the same thing. And so meditation... Uh, does that, that that kind of Buddhist approach to analyzing your own thinking and being free from the harsh judgment and comparison and all that, sitting in this more kind of divine spot, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then when you're there, I think that that, um, that kind of transcendent unity begins to happen for you. Whether it pours through the forms of nature or it comes through... uh, the sense of love that you get from your neighbors and family and the like, you begin to experience life in a, in a deeper way. And then when you sit in meditation and you're able to kind of turn your ego voice off and you can hear your uh, intuitive intelligence a little bit better, then you begin to dissolve. And that's what I relate to my experiences in near death of being bodiless but being connected to everything, you know? And that, so that's that, when that sense is true of self happiness. That's that, a happiness that, that carries over. That is the definition over. of success. Yeah. yeah, that's the redefinition of success. 
Now you have in your first book, you talk about, you give three tips for happiness. And the first of those you call radical kindness. You say that it's self-explanatory what radical kindness is. You also call it the single most effective transformational practice for your life. That should make everybody go, ooh, I want that, the single most transformational <laughs> practice. But what is your, it, it's not necessarily self-explanatory, that word radical kindness. Why don't you define that for us or give us examples of it? Um, sure, yeah. I always like to present this to people as a challenge because I think by doing is the best way. You know, we have to take action. You're not, you're not going to attain any levels of enlightenment really just sitting on a rock by the river. You have to go out and do things in the world. You have to take action. Yeah. And this <laughs> is a simple, uh, straightforward action <clears throat> that it seems like a no-brainer because it is a no-brainer. It's an all-harder. I like <laughs> it. Where yeah. Try it. Go out and be radically kind to everyone you meet. And I don't mean to act like a boob or to be patronizing or or to dish the dirt with somebody. We all know what it means to be authentically kind, not at somebody else's expense, but just engaging with everyone that you meet in an open-hearted and authentic way. And watch what happens. It will yeah. absolutely transform your daily life in a way you never could have imagined when you start to realize there is this fabric of love and kindness right there all the time that you didn't realize was there because you're always worried about stuff too much. Or, you know, you're always being too judgmental yeah. Yeah. Or, or too gossipy or something. And so that's what I mean. Well, by that's ego. And, and yeah, that. That's the ego, and the ego doesn't want us to discover this. This source of happiness is right here, and all we have to do is get outside of ourselves. Right. Yeah. Ego doesn't want us to transcend the delusion of separateness. Uh, the great thing about being radically kind, too, that I discovered is I go into a store or something, and the minute I walk into a store uh, or any kind of crowd, we'll meet that what the Sufis call the, the other where uh, you kind of encounter, your eyes scan the room, and there is somebody there, right? Yeah, it it gets lighted up, lighted up. Right, right. And your eyes meet, and you go, "Uh uh-huh, there you are. And you're happy to see each other. You know that the friend, the other, is there to to, uh, complete you in a way. But even if you've never met that person, I know what you're saying because there's just a catch. I call it the snag. And and if you just follow your intuition and ask a question that comes into your awareness, you find this connection with that person or something magical happens. Yes, yeah. I I mean, our, our karma weaves our lives together in a very significant way. So we have met each other. You know, I've I've never done a lot of, you know, soul journeying uh, into uh, past carnations, incarnations. Um, I'd like to someday, but I know that it's true, uh, you know, and I, I, I know that there is a, a reason. It's part of my purpose, the pur- purpose that I was shown in that last near-death experience. I'm in these people's lives for a reason. Um, my purpose is not necessarily something grandiose or fabulous. I'm not meant to be a you know, a movie star or something, but I am meant to show up for 
the people that I love in my life and who love me. And so rather than being, you know, a big budget blockbuster, uh, the movie of my life is more like a kind of a handheld indie movie (laughs) that is, uh, you know, is really a good movie as long as I show up aligning myself to these aspects of heaven so that I can recognize my purpose may just be simply showing up for somebody else. Yeah, so all of you listening, just just think about how simple it can be to make to create magical moments in your lives just by stepping outside of your normal way of doing things and thinking, okay, how can I align with my true nature? And Robert, you mentioned another one is radical surrender. How about your definition of that? Yeah, I heard a great, um, I think it was Abraham Hicks. And then I encountered it in Native American uh, mythology, too. It's this great um, concept metaphor that whenever you're rowing too hard upstream, turn around. (laughs) Good advice. It's so funny. I just saw people on a a shell, eight people rowing a shell up the river this morning, so... So many synchronicities with what you're saying. We'll talk about synchronicity in just a minute, but just continue your your definition of radical surrender. Yeah, and so the evidence of your life, if you stop and and look at it kind of critically, is is in. You know, it's you have evidence in your life that you're here, that you're alive, that you have this miraculous potential around you all the time. That life is an amazing thing and can be as amazing as you're willing to show up to it for. So the lesson of my second near-death experience was presence, that we are in this eternal moment. And in this eternal moment, I always have a choice to let go of those material expectations and all of the worries that I have that really never amount or rarely amount to anything and release myself to this flow of this loving intelligence that is has been carrying me through my life. And um, that's the turning around and swimming, way, not growing upstream. That's what you're talking about. Right. You turn around and put your hands up, put your paddle up, and the ride is going to be beautiful. You know, it's going to be what it needs to be to fulfill your your karmic structure, the underlying spiritual technology at work in your life. Exactly. Okay. You talk in your book about the power of absolute humility. I have a, a, a recording called The Journey of Remembrance, and it's one of what my guides called the sacred seven aspects of the soul, of humility. And some people have a hard time understanding why humility would be part of the soul. What's your take on that? Um. Well, I talked about it a little bit before. It's the, it's what deconstructs all those expectations, all that 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 kind of false interface with the material world. I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to be that. This is how uh, this plan should work. I'm trying to con- the the degree to which we try to control things is the degree to which we will suffer <laughs> usually, you know. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, and so 
when we become really our authentic self, when all of that stuff falls away, when we allow it to just fall off of us like armor, so to speak, and we're, we just reveal ourselves as being this open-hearted individual, this is it, this is all there is to it, then, uh, as uh, Shunryu Suzuki uh, used to say, the, um, the beginner's bowl is always empty, right? The experts is too full for anything else to fit. And so when we can uh, just reboot ourselves into that a kind of a state of absolute humility, we become teachable at that moment. Miracles yeah. begin to happen. We recognize synchronicities happening all the time. And that because our egoic thought process isn't in the way anymore. Who we are supposed to be doesn't matter. It's who we are that then starts to direct us and inform our lives. So what what is your take on synchronicities and why they start happening more often? Uh, synchronicities are just evidence of this vast, and don't ask me to explain it, but there is obviously a vast invisible machinery, a spiritual technology of the highest order at work in this life and in this universe. And... Uh, you know, I go into the book a little bit about uh, Jung, and you know, Jung's the guy who coined the term, and mm-hmm. and he didn't he didn't come to it uh, because um, he was making things up. He had spent an entire life as a, as an analyst dealing with uh, the circumstances of people's experience, and it became impossible uh, to deny that there were these um, coincidences that were extremely significant, in fact, so significant, that they were basically custom-made to people's <laughs> lives, right, that indicated this kind of vast underlying spiritual technology at work. This um, connection between the, a, the, this physical world and other realities. Right, right, exactly. I, I think of it sometimes metaphorically. I don't know if you've ever been on a glass-bottom boat in like a tourist place yeah, where you yeah. go out to look at the coral reef. Lots of times they'll have a door over the window, and they open it up so that you can look down at the at the coral reef beneath you. And when you do, it is absolutely stunning. It's like, oh, my gosh, that is fabulously beautiful down there right under my feet. I never would have known it, you know. And then mm-hmm. they close the door back up and they want another $2 or something. <laughs> and so this life's experience is kind of like that, I think. Synchronicities occur, something that seems really impossible that makes perfect sense and that opens you up to the miraculous, kind of like that door opening up on what's really underneath and binding us all together. That's what synchronicities are doing, I think. They're evidence of the unseen. And they're all around if we start looking for them and recognize that connection. So your book, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying, talks about the fact that we can experience that same sense of loving and peace and joy and happiness that you experienced in your three near-death experiences, but we can do it without dying. Now, do you feel it's possible to experience that intense kind of love that so many who have NDEs talk about and maintain it? Or is it just something that we can, even by grace, occasionally experience here? 
I think that's probably closer to the truth, unfortunately. We can experience it. I think all of us do. Everybody has had a little piece of heaven happen in their life, right? You know what I'm talking about. Yes. We know those moments of bliss. I'm sure your listeners are the kind of people that have experienced moments of divine bliss in their life. Um, But they come and go uh, very quickly because of the, the nature the misperception problem we have as human beings. So it really requires this kind of loving vigilance, you know, that when we can open ourselves up and just take in the sacredness of everything, we experience that as much as you possibly can as a human being. And when all the material claptrap rushes back in, you have to say, wait a minute, (laughs) let me try this again. We get in touch with the spirit of the universe, with God, with Jesus or Krishna or, you know, whoever, Mm -hmm. whatever kind of devotional aspect opens you up in your life. And you can then experience it again, not as as, uh, pure as I did in my near-death experiences and that I recognize in the other experiences of of people that I've heard their stories, Uh, but... You know, it's a pretty good, um, it's a, it's pretty close to it. And particularly, I think, if you're aligning yourself in the way that I suggest in the first part of the book, if you're aware that everything is taking place in the eternal moment right now, we are forming our karma, we are able to open up to the experience the miracles of life, and then in recognizing that you have a divine purpose that only you can fulfill and it needn't be something spectacular other than to spectacularly make you whole. And Thank you, Robert. You. It's perfect. Just yes. the perfect way to end okay. the program. Thank you for sharing sure. with us, everybody. That's been Robert Kopecki talking about how to get to heaven, some beautiful tools. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you, right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.